Well, good morning, church. My name's Phil Shields. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and I am so glad that you are here this morning. We are in Matthew 26, and we're continuing this journey of uh, Jesus' last night before going to the cross. And so we're going to dive uh, more into this uh, and looking at what's taking place. I don't know uh, if you remember this, but uh, in 1999, there was a movie that won a bunch of Oscars in various categories called Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan is this movie about World War II, and Tom Hanks is the lead actor in it. He represents uh, a man by the name of Captain Miller. Captain Miller uh, ends up, uh, after uh, being on the beaches of Normandy, he comes and his commander gives him a new mission. And he tells them to uh, grab a, an eight, a group of eight soldiers and to go and to find this Private Ryan. Private Ryan was uh, played by Matt Damon. He's further away, and so Miller ends up going, and he takes this group through the countryside, and he goes through enemy territory, and goes through all these towns that have been bombed out. He's, he's around enemies, and he takes this group of eight, and all of them are going to get this one man. And the sole reason is because Private Ryan's three brothers had died. And so the military was going to send him home so that his mother didn't have to have the fourth son die. And so as they do this, uh, Miller goes and this group ends up uh, kind of arguing about what they're doing and what they're supposed to do. Why would they be doing this? And the entire time, Captain Miller says, this is our mission. And they keep going, knowing the danger that is, lies ahead, knowing full well that they were going to be around enemies and, and that quite possibly they would be giving their lives for the life of Private Ryan. If you've seen the movie, it's powerful, powerful story. Well, I thought about that movie quite a bit as I was reading this text. In fact, I actually went back and I started watching clips from the movie and, and just uh, looking at that story because we see a similar situation here in Matthew 26. The difference, though, is that the mission that happens in these 10 verses is a mission for all humanity and not just one life. This is a, a mission that has to do with the humanity's sin and punishment. And as you read it, what you end up finding out is that Jesus ends up knowing the danger. He knows the danger that lies ahead. And yet he continues moving through this painful journey. Now, I want to be clear about something because we can read this text and we can, we can dive into it. And yet, what we need to understand is that this text is not teaching us how to pray. 
See, there's three prayers in it, and we can look at that, and often we can say, well, what does this text have for me? And we can say, well, it has to do with prayer, and so uh, this must be how I'm supposed to pray. And i got to tell you, that's not what this text is about. In fact, earlier in Matthew, Jesus teaches us how to pray, but what this text is showing us, uh, what we need to see in this dark environment where Jesus is at, is that Jesus is going to battle temptation, and he's going to defeat temptation in order to bring forgiveness to us because we are incredibly weak. You might have entered this morning thinking that you're really strong. But I'm here to tell you, you are incredibly weak. I'm incredibly weak when we read what's happening here. In fact, I believe that there's a principle that comes up in this text, and it's simply this. That despite the human agony, Jesus battled in prayer and obedience for you. Despite the human agony that's going to come in, into him, he battled in prayer and obedience for you. We're going to see that through three battles that take place in these ten verses. We're going to first see it as we see the battle of diversion. Then we're going to look at the battle of will and then the battle for you. So are you ready? All right, let's dive in. We're going to start with the battle of diversion. And what we see is in the battle of diversion, we look at verses 36 through 41. And so if you're looking there, what it says is that this, that, uh, this group, Jesus takes this group of disciples to an area called Gethsemane. And so he takes his disciples there. And what we read throughout the Gospels is that we find that Jesus often would go places and he would spend time in prayer, often alone. In fact, if you looked at uh, Luke 5.16, it would say that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and he spent time in prayer. He prayed. Now, Jesus going to pray is not an unusual thing. This is not unusual for Jesus to go somewhere that is, seems to be desolate to spend time in prayer. But what is unusual is that he ends up taking all of the disciples, all 11. At this time, Judas has already left the group. But he goes to a place that is familiar to him. This is the Mount of Olives. He goes to the Mount of Olives. It's a, a place right outside Jerusalem's walls. In fact, uh, I was talking with uh, Kyle Reschke this week, and he gave me two pictures that uh, I want you to see the context of where this would be taking place. The first picture uh, that we have is right where this is at. You can see the walls of Jerusalem. And so Jesus leaves and he goes into this area where there are all these olive groves. And the, the next picture shows kind of the, the grouping of these trees all over the place. And so Jesus goes to this dark area that's right outside the city. It's an area where the, the people would, would get the olives and there would be these caves in, in this area and they would press the oil. They would make the oil for the people there. In fact, in the Gospel of John, John calls it a garden. It's very garden-like. 
But this is also the place, if we just flip a couple pages in our Gospel of Matthew to Matthew 24 and 25, this is the place that Jesus would have given what is known as the Olivet Discourse. So this is a very familiar place for Jesus. Now think about it for a moment. Jesus goes and he prays. He can see the wall. He can probably hear the sounds of the city. He he can look at the city of God, Jerusalem, and what he is doing in this text is he is processing his journey to the cross in a place that he loved so deeply. So Judas is gone and Jesus takes eight of his disciples and he leaves them in one section of this garden and then he takes his three disciples that he is the closest with, Peter, James, and John, and he ends up going a little further and what ends up happening is Jesus starts to reveal something about himself that the disciples really never saw. Look at what the text says in verse 37. It says that he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Those words sorrowful and troubled means that Jesus is physically, he is now completely changing. His physical demeanor, his emotional demeanor, everything's changing. And in front of him, he is showing these three that he is the closest with that he is incredibly grieving. He is entering a time of agony. He then goes on in verse 38. And he says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. This isn't just him saying, I'm sad. He's saying everything about himself is now filled with sorrow to the point of death. And notice he then gives a command to these three. Stay here and keep watch with me. So, He is doing something absolutely incredible when we can kind of like be these backseat drivers and we can look at this and we can say, man, Jesus is inviting these three into a space personally that others were not invited into. He's saying, I am filled with sorrow almost to death and I want you with me. See, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, what we read is that these disciples continually need Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, I need you. I need you with me. See, here we see that Jesus is a man. He's a man. He spiritually recognizes the agony of what it means to bear the sin of all humanity. Not just the the city that he is looking upon, but all of humanity. And he desires human relationship to be with him and sustain him in a time of turmoil. In fact, when we look at this, what we can understand is the full incarnation that Jesus is actually 
fully human and fully God. He's fully human because he's saying, I need you. I need you to watch with me. I want the comfort of this companionship that we have. Now think about this for a second. He is talking, if you were here last week, you can remember what Hannibal was uh, walking us through. But just prior to this, Peter is giving an incredible declaration. Peter is basically saying, I am so courageous. I'm so full of faith that I will never leave you. I will never deny you, Jesus. The other two, they have given their declarations of how courageous they are. They actually boast about it. What's fascinating is these three, if you go uh, back to chapter 17, these three are the ones that heard the voice from heaven of the heavenly father saying, this is my beloved son. They know who Jesus is. And eventually, if you jump ahead, they are eventually going to hear the silence of God not responding when Jesus cries out, my father, from the cross. These three are going to see the full humanity and the full Godhead of Jesus. And so what Jesus does is, is he invites these three there for his needs, but he also invites them there because he knows that they're going to need to understand what a life of surrender to him is all about. Then we read verse 39. Jesus goes off and he starts to pray, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is alone in a dark garden. And what's interesting is in verse 39, you see that he goes a little further and he falls on his face to the ground. We got to witness the posture of Jesus. And so he falls on his face and he starts to pray with this intimate title, my father, Abba, Abba, Father. And Jesus knows in this moment of agony that the exact place he needs to be is with his father. He needs to be praying. He needs to be spending time with God. And what we find is that all three prayers start with this, this title of my father. But then the prayer just kind of twists a little bit as we progress through the scene. Notice in verse 39, it says, if it be possible. I don't know how you read this, but if you read this for the first time, you got to go, well, this is interesting. Why would Jesus be asking, God, is, if it's possible, take it from me? Why would he ask for this? And it's because what we have to recognize is that this is actually the moment where it's Satan's last-ditch effort to tempt King Jesus to move away from the cross. There's a battle of diversion that's happening. 
A battle of like, just go a different direction. Don't, don't continue in this way. Just this diversion comes and, and this battle's coming. And Satan is now saying, I am going to tempt him one last time. See, the moment of his life mission was about to come. And Satan tries to tempt him and convince him that the cross isn't necessary. He's trying to say it's not necessary for you to do this. Now notice, it's not that Jesus is afraid of death, but it's the kind of death that he has this agony that's coming. It's the most intense, enduring of suffering that you can imagine. See, the hard part is it's one thing to be crucified. But it's another thing to have the weight of sin, to become a curse for every one of us, for all humanity, for all time. And not only that, to hang on a cross and your heavenly father has to turn his back on you. See, that's what Jesus is going through. That's what he's, he's processing in this garden. He's saying, if it be possible. He's asking, uh, is there another way? And so Jesus is showing his true humanity. If you were to jump ahead to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 4.15 it tells us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. See, the battle of diversion occurs during this first prayer. And we see that Jesus is having to, to process and, and, and asking, is there another way? And then... He gets to verse 40. Verse 40 through 41, it says that Jesus spends this time in prayer and he goes back to the disciples. And he found them asleep. I love this, this phrase. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? I guarantee you that some of you men in this room today are going to fall asleep during the Bears game. You're not going to be able to stay awake for one quarter. And what Jesus ends up finding is that these guys end up, they can't even stay awake for one hour. He had been gone for one hour praying this prayer, spending time with the Father, and he comes back and he addresses them. And notice, he asked this question, but it, the text specifically says he asked Peter. Peter is being drawn out now. This is the future leader of the church. I mean, Jesus is going at him. Why couldn't you? Why couldn't you leave these other guys to stay awake and keep watch? And he ends up saying, I wanted you to watch with me. But now you need to keep watch for yourselves so that you don't fall into temptation. 
Now, there's so many things that I want to jump ahead to, but I will get slapped if I do. We can't go to the further text, okay? But what we end up seeing is that these guys are going to be tempted. And Jesus is saying, you need to stay awake. And why do you need to stay awake? Because you need to pray. You need to watch and pray. You need to be with me here. And the reason you need to be with me is because there will be a battle of diversion that you are going to come across. And your flesh is weak. I want to ask you, when your battle of diversion comes, is your first action step to pray? Are you shocked when agony comes in your life? Because Jesus dealt with agony. If he dealt with agony, it means we're going to deal with agony. And how we respond is really important. And so Jesus is showing his full full humanity and that he goes through this battle of diversion. But this battle of diversion ends up leading us to the battle of will. The battle of will is found in verses 42 through 44. I don't know what your home is like or was like when there were kids present, but I'm going to give you a view of my home. I have two kids, Gavin and Kiana, and one of the things that is uh, absolutely normal for our home is that when I ask my kids to do something like clean up the kitchen or do the laundry or pick up the house, they never complain. They just jump right in and they start doing it. In fact, in those situations when that happens, we have the Hallmark soundtrack just starts playing somehow. And it's like this total bliss in our home. It's probably because I'm the perfect parent. Now, that's a lie, okay? Our home isn't like that at all. I can ask my kids to do something, and they are just as human as me, and they end up struggling, and they will ask, why? Why now? Why do I have to do that now? Why am I the one? Ask Gavin to do it, or ask Kiana to do it. Why can't mom do it? That's the worst answer. And, and they, they get into this. And to be totally honest with you, there are times when my wife asks me to do something and I want to be like, why? Ask the kids to do it. And so why do we do that? It's because we have a, a battle of the will. Because what my will wants is totally different than the will of my kids. It might be totally different than my wife. We all have this will within us, and, and this battle takes place. And what we find is that Jesus goes away a second time to pray. And he starts the prayer the same, my Father, Abba, Father. And, and he knows at this point, after going back and seeing the disciples, that there's no other way, that the cup of wrath is going to come to him. 
Notice how he says it. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. There's a slight twist. If it's not possible, I get it now. See, he doesn't seek his own death, but when he says, your will be done, he is stating, I will not flee from this. He chooses God's will. He's saying, your will be done through my life and through my death. And what Matthew writes here is that he wants this central theme that goes all the way through this entire book for it to come out. That God is in complete control of every event, even when the events are full of tragedy. And Jesus' death is going to be awful. But it's going to be a voluntary act of obedience, fulfilling the will of God. See, he's he's saying, whatever your will be done, I will follow. In Hebrews chapter 5, there's this interesting two verses that I believe actually point back to the Garden of Gethsemane. The writer says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Matthew shows us three prayers. Jesus isn't stumbling or he isn't falling into temptation, but he remains sinless and he seeks the Father's will. So how can we see that? Well, jump back to verse 39. In verse 39, when he prays, the cup being taken from him, the cup of wrath being taken from him, meant not drinking it. That he would not drink the cup of wrath. That he would not die on the cross. But then you get to verse 42 and look at how he phrases it. He ends up saying that the passing of the cup means drinking it. It means that the wrath comes. Now notice what Jesus does though. It's totally different the the way we operate. He doesn't keep praying the prayer of verse 39. He switches to the prayer of let me be strengthened to pursue your will and to live out your will. Think about what we do. We're asked to do something and we might ask eight times for that to be changed. And Jesus doesn't do that. He knows that he must go to the cross. Now, what's interesting in the book of Matthew is, and uh, we might look at this and go, it doesn't seem like God is uh, listening to him, like he's not hearing him. Jesus is praying this, he's crying out. But that's why you got to jump to the other gospels at times. And if you jump to the same scene in Luke 22, what you find is that God hears this prayer and he ends up sending an angel 
to strengthen Jesus. But it's not to strengthen him to flee from the cup of wrath. It's to strengthen him to continue to go so that the sorrow of death would not deter him from the will of the Father. So an angel comes to encourage him, continue on, keep going, pursue the will of God. Now, I don't know if you are fully seeing this, but this sorrow and turmoil that Jesus is wrestling with is him in his humanity knowing that the crucifixion is going to be horrible, that the physical pain is going to be horrible, but more importantly, that the spiritual pain of sin and the abandonment of his father is going to be absolutely horrendous. So Jesus ends up returning to his friends. Remember, he he brought these three to be there with him, to be his companions, to watch with him, to pray. And he finds them asleep again. And instead of waking them, he leaves them and he goes a third time to pray. He, he doesn't want to, to deal with them at that time. He goes, and what ends up happening is he repeats the same words again. Now, this is important. Sometimes you need to repeat things or repeat words to stay committed to the task before you. Sometimes you need to pray the same prayer over and over and over again to strengthen you for the task that God has given you. Sometimes that that repetition ends up helping for you to get a clear perspective of of the will of God. See, some of you are are moms that are praying for kids that have wandered away. Don't stop praying that. Repeat the same words. Some of you are praying for your spouse or you're praying for a health situation. Continue praying that. Because that will change your perspective. And it will help you seek what the will of the Father is all about. See, this battle of will is taking place. And Jesus says, I will follow the Father's will. See, despite the human agony... Jesus battled in prayer and obedience for you. To make a way for you. So these two battles happen and it all culminates with the battle for you. We see this in verses 45 through 46. That Jesus passes through these first two battles so that he can get to this third one. And he returns to the disciples. He returns to like the sleepover they're having. And he wakes them. 
I mean, he gets them up. And it's not like he's waking them with this happy, uh, like, good morning, fellas. He wakes them with horrible news. Tragic news. He has been betrayed, and in moments he will be arrested. Now understand what's happening in this dark garden. The innocent and sinless King Jesus will be arrested by the sinful hands of mankind. And he, the most innocent of everyone, will now end up being led away to his death. But I want you to see it. Jesus could have fled. He could have run. He could have gotten away. See, this is at nighttime. It's dark, and he's there, and he's praying, and he could probably see the torches of the mob that are coming to arrest him. And he could have run away. And yet, he stays. And, and what is fascinating is as you read this, these guys who declared how courageous they are and almost how brilliant they are could not stay awake or understand how sorrowful, how troubled Jesus was. I think of of uh, mothers with, with kids that are just uh, in the hospital for one night and those moms stay awake the whole night. They're going to be with their kid the whole night. They give up sleep. They give up and, and they just want to comfort and all of that. And these guys, they don't get it. They can't even read the sorrow of the Messiah. And it's interesting because they fall asleep. And it's when they fell asleep that Jesus is going, yep, there is absolutely no other way. They can't even stay awake. There's no way that they can take care of their own sin. So I have to drink the cup of wrath. And so notice what he says in verse 46. He says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And this command isn't to flee, but to willingly approach the mob coming for him. He's not saying let's run. He's saying we're going to walk right into enemy territory. And I'm giving myself over to them. What's interesting is that in each of these three prayers, Jesus references this cup. In the Hebrew scriptures, the cup is often this metaphor, and it's not an easy metaphor, but it's a metaphor for the wrath of God on human sin. See, the wrath of God has to deal with human sin. And so the cup is basically heaven's justice coming and dealing with those that are sinful. Because a holy God cannot allow sinfulness in his presence. And so Jesus in Gethsemane, he 
He fears the silence of God. He fears the separation from his father. But he knows that he must drink the cup of wrath for you. Friends, how are your sins and my sins forgiven? It's because Jesus becomes sin for us. He becomes the curse for us. And when he does that, the the separation between he and the Father ends up echoing through all of heaven and through all of earth because he was willingly and voluntarily drinks the cup of wrath for you. And in verse 46, we see that the Son of Man willingly gets up and he walks straight into it for you. My prayer is that for for me, for you, that we would read this today and that we, uh, even though it's going to be incredibly hard to understand, that we would dig in and understand the suffering that Jesus dealt with mentally and physically and know that we can stand in awe of a Savior that was willing to do that for us. He battled for you. There's a story of a little boy whose uh, sister needed a blood transfusion. She was suffering from this same disease that this boy uh, himself had survived two years earlier. The doctor explained that the only chance of recovery for this little girl was to receive a blood transfusion from someone else who had conquered this disease. And so her brother was the ideal donor. Since both of them shared uh, the same rare blood type. So the doctor comes in and starts talking to John. Would, would you give your blood to Mary? And Little Johnny, he's hesitating and thinking about it. And with this trembling lower lip, he, he finally says, sure, for my sister, I'll do it. Eventually, the two kids are wheeled into the hospital room. And his sister, Mary, is really pale and thin. And, and John, he's healthy. And so... Neither one of them, they're little and they didn't speak to one another, but every time their eyes met, John would just smile at his sister. Eventually the nurse comes and she sticks the needle in, and as she sticks the needle in, his smile fades. He watches the blood go through the tube. And when the whole ordeal is is almost over, this little brother his voice breaks the silence and he says, Doctor, when do I die? It's only then that the doctor ends up realizing that the reason this little boy hesitated, why his lip was quivering, that he agreed to donate his blood, but he thought that the doctor was asking for all of it. And yet he was willing to give it for his sister. There's a difference between little John and Jesus. 
This little boy didn't understand what was happening, and yet he was willing to give his life for his sister. Jesus understood everything in the garden. And he was willing to battle for you. Friends, despite the human agony, Jesus battled in prayer and obedience for you so that he would go to the cross and become sin for you and me so that forgiveness can come to our lives. Do you know it? Do you live in awe of it? May we be the disciples that stand in awe of his glory. Father, I pray that today we would be people that are focused on you and that we would understand the turmoil that you went through, the battle that you went through so that you could bring about a unity for us with the Father. And Lord, I know that we take it for granted so often. And so I pray that in these moments that we would reflect and that we would ha actually have some sorrow. But that we would also, through that sorrow, praise you for standing in our place. Thank you for being the voluntary sacrifice for us. And so we give you glory. It's in your name I pray. Amen.